Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The 2019 Summer Sunday Lecture Series, celebrating the old master collections of the National Gallery of Art, takes a closer look at the many treasures housed in the gallery's permanent collection. On August 11th, Diane Stevens, a senior educator at the National Gallery of Art, discusses masterpieces of American furniture from the Kaufman Collection, 1700 to 1830. These magnificent objects were permanently installed at the National Gallery of Art in October 2012 as a promised gift of the collection formed over five decades by Linda H. Kaufman and the late George M. Kaufman, which includes some of the finest and most elegant examples of American furniture produced in colonial and post-revolutionary America. The Kaufman Collection, a significant addition to the decorative arts at the National Gallery of Art and in Washington, and these important pieces of furniture complement and enrich the great American achievements in painting and sculpture in the gallery's permanent collection. Thank you all for joining me here today, and thank you also to those of you who are watching online. I'm Diane Stevens, a member of the Education Department, and I'm delighted to be here today to talk about our subject, Masterpieces of American Furniture from the Kaufman Collection, 1700 to 1830. The Kaufman Collection of American Furniture was installed in the center galleries on the ground floor of the West Building in October of 2012, almost seven years ago. In that time, it's made a tremendous difference to the um, opportunity to see decorative arts in Washington. The, the White House and the State Department have fabulous collections of American furniture, but they're not very easy to get to, to see. And here at the National Gallery, you can walk in any day of the week and see just incredible uh, examples of colonial and post-revolutionary or pre-revolutionary American furniture. So that's been great for Washington. Here at the National Gallery, the Kaufman Collection has also transformed our decorative arts collection, which previously consisted of about 500 objects, mainly Chinese porcelains, and almost all from the Widener Collection. So it has also transformed our American collection, I think, because I consider American furniture to be the first great American art form. So here at the gallery, it's been wonderful to have the Kaufman furniture. Um, but furniture has a practical side as well as an aesthetic side. So it combines aesthetics with use. Uh, people live their lives around the furniture. They sit on it, they eat on it, they store their belongings in it. Um, it's an indicator of taste, wealth, and status. So I like to think about the people involved with the furniture, the, the owners and the makers, and what their world was like. So we'll talk about that a little bit today. But before we look at the furniture specifically, let me tell you a little bit about how this collection came to be. In this image, you see some of the furniture before it came to the gallery in its previous life in the beautiful Kaufman home. Natives of Norfolk, Virginia, George and Linda Kaufman began collecting in the late 1950s. While George was studying for his master's degree at the University of Virginia, they bought furniture to furnish their apartment in Charlottesville, perhaps influenced by the collection of art and antiques brought together by Linda's parents, Elise and Henry Clay Hoffheimer II. Their first purchase was a Massachusetts Queen Anne high chest that George bought at Israel Sack in New York when he popped into the shop to get out of the rain. That was truly serendipity. But it, by the early 70s, George and Linda Kaufman's collecting had become much more intentional. Their interest and commitment had grown, and they honed their connoisseurship by visiting uh, important collections at Winterthur, the Metropolitan Museum, Yale, and other places. As Linda said in 2002, when accepting the 10th Henry Francis DuPont Award for Decorative Arts and Architecture, collecting was such fun for us. We never played golf or tennis, never had a boat, and rarely traveled except to New York for auctions. We just loved chasing old wood. <laughs> After three decades of chasing old wood, the gallery celebrated the Kaufman's dedication to American furniture with an exhibition in 1986. Maybe some of you remember that. The award-winning catalog for that exhibition still stands as the major source of information on the pieces that were included. And perhaps it was at this time that the seed was planted in the Kaufmans' minds that the, their collection, which had been for them a labor of love, might ultimately be something to be shared with the nation. After the 1986 exhibition at the gallery, George and Linda continued to collect. They enjoyed living with their collection, 
learning from it, and sharing it with others. George Kaufman died in 2001, and in October 2010, Linda made an extremely generous promise gift to the gallery of what was considered at the time to be the finest assemblage of early American furniture still in private hands. Linda Kaufman was very involved in planning the installation, and our design department took inspiration from the way it was installed in her home. Here you see Linda with Rusty Powell, our director at the time, looking at a mock-up of the installation in our design department while it was still in the planning stages. It was much easier to move these paper maquettes around than the actual pieces of furniture. It's been my observation from the beginning that Linda Kaufman has taken great pleasure in seeing others enjoy the collection here at the gallery. For the most part, the collection is installed chronologically and by style. So we will look at a couple of pieces from each of four broad stylistic categories, early and late Baroque, which many people know as William and Mary and Queen Anne styles, the Rococo or Chippendale, the early classical or federal style, and lastly, the late classical or empire style. We'll begin in early 18th century Boston with the earliest piece in the installation. Almost from the beginning, furniture making was an important industry in the colonies. The cost of importing furniture was high, and there was a plentiful supply of really high quality local wood. Also, large numbers of craftsmen and artisans arrived from England, and to a lesser extent from other European countries, with the training and the skills necessary to meet the needs of the colonial purchasers. This dressing table, or low boy, made in Boston between 1700 and 1730, is an example of the new European Baroque taste that traveled up the continent to the lowlands and then to England under Charles II and eventually under William and Mary. Thus, it was called the William and Mary style. The style first became popular in the colonies at the very end of the reign of William and Mary, so many historians think it makes more sense to refer to the style as early Baroque, referring to the movement in the form. Think of what is meant by Baroque in relation to paintings and sculpture and architecture, and then apply that to this piece, and I think you'll see an exaggerated sense of motion in the ogival curves of the skirt, and in the stretchers, and then those exuberance in those trumpet feet, trumpet legs with the balls. I think you can see why this, is, this piece has a lot of movement and is considered a Baroque piece. Um, notice the ball feet and the trumpet-shaped um, legs with, other, with additional balls. This piece, the decoration in this piece was done in a technique called Japanning, an imitation of Asian lacquer work. The extent of the decoration is extraordinary. It covers almost every available surface. The table top contains the largest Japan picture known in American furniture. The 18th century in Europe and its colonies had a craze for all things Asian, porcelain, silk, tea, and lacquer, and lacquer was very expensive. Real lacquer comes from the sap of Asian sumac trees, which do not grow in Europe or the Americas, so Japaners started with a dense wood whose grain would not show, and then applied a pigmented varnish, in this case black. The artist then added fanciful figures, animals and flowers, either painted or built up with gesso, a kind of plaster. Then the artist added gilding and drew in details with black ink, and then he varnished it. This top is exceptionally well-preserved with fragile gesso figures intact. The elaborate hunt scene that we see here is Asian in style, but it tells a story that we all know of hunters with big, large bow and arrows and hunters on horseback um, pursuing a mythical beast in a landscape of flowers and trees. By 1700 or 1730, when this piece was made, the coastal region of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was a thriving mercantile area with Boston as its hub. The population of Boston was about 13,000, and there were about 100,000, uh, or 100, about 100 furniture craftsmen, including a small circle of English-trained Japaners. This earliest piece in the installation presents a couple of themes that I want to emphasize because they will come up again and again, and they're very important in understanding the world in which this furniture was made. The interest in Asia that we see here, although not yet very geographically sophisticated, since the term Japan referred to, referred to all Asian lacquer work, is part of a huge revolution in trade that began in the late 16th, early 17th century. 
foreign goods and commodities flowed into Europe from exotic ports of call across China, India, Japan, Sri Lanka, and the West Indies. Tea, silks, tobacco, spices, dye stuffs, ivory, porcelain, and fancy woods. This consumer revolution transformed European culture in the 17th century, and the transformation accelerated during the 18th century, and is important for our story of American furniture. A second theme that this very elaborately decorated early dressing table introduces, and that we will see again and again, is the desire of the patron to have the very finest and the latest style. And for the first and second generation English um, settlers in America, they looked back to England, to their motherland, for what was important. They wanted what was popular in England. A third related theme that we will see play out is that like the 18th century American paintings in our collection, American furniture demonstrates the importation, adaptation, and transformation of inherited European art forms, reflecting European ideas while changing them into an idiom suited to the American context. This painting by John Singleton Copley from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston is one of three portraits Copley made of Nicholas Boylston, a wealthy Boston merchant whose, film, whose firm became extremely successful in the 1760s, importing from abroad the textiles, paper, tea, and glass avidly sought by fellow Bostonians. Boylston favored vivid flowing tunics, this, this is called a banian, and colorful skull caps over, over homespun or more monochromatic uh, fabrics. I'm sure this was all available because he was in the import business. Um, in fact, he valued his clothing so highly that it was one of the first things to be dispersed in his will. He was clearly partaking in the consumer revolution. And you can see his, um, he's sitting on a chair, a Chippendale chair, the very latest style in the 1760s, and he has, has his arm resting on his ledgers. When the notably frugal John Adams dined at Boylston's very elegant home in 1766, he described its sumptuous interiors as fit for a nobleman, a prince, and he was astounded to learn that the furniture alone cost a thousand pounds sterling. I wonder if Boylston owned a Japan chest or dressing table. Or perhaps John Adams saw something like this in Nicholas Boylston's home, an appropriate place to store his valuable wardrobe. This is a quintessential Queen Anne, Massachusetts high boy or high chest, now considered late Baroque in style. The situation is the same as with William and Mary. By the time the Queen Anne style reached the colonies, Queen Anne had died. This chest has every possible refinement, making it very clear that the patron was interested in the finest quality and the highest style. Think about the way one would acquire a piece like this. You didn't go to a showroom and pick it out. Instead, you went to a craftsman and told him what you wanted. You talked about the practical aspects that were important to you and the embellishments that you wanted, and perhaps some that you didn't care about. The patron, in this case, wanted everything. You can notice the um, decorative book-marched walnut veneer drawer fronts. Book matching is a, a way of matching the panels of Vermeer so that they look they mirror each other as if you were opening a book. So you see that on each door front, there are two panels of two pieces of a mirror that match, that mirror each other. Um, on this piece, you can also see the pilasters that run up and down on either side of the uppercase. You notice the um, cross banding and the stringing around the drawers. And I don't know how well you can see them, but there are compass stars up here at the top that you, when, when you see the piece in person, you'll notice them. It has, it has every, every option. And like the Japan dressing table we just saw, the uh, same level of decoration extends to the sides of both upper and lower cases. So there are, they are cross-banded, outlined in stringing, and inset with compass stars on the upper and lower case on each side. So nothing is missing on this piece. The carved shells are carved into the pine, the white pine of the drawer. Um, remember, the fronts of the drawers are vermeered with walnut. So the, the shells are carved in and then gilded. Mrs. Kaufman said that when she bought this piece, um, the gilded, the shells had radiator paint on them. So <laughs> she had them regilded. Radiator paint makes me think of Rust-Oleum, I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, they've been regilded. 
the brasses on this piece are old but not original. And when you go into the gallery to look at it, you'll notice the shadows from the old uh, brasses are still there. This is a good place to remember that even at this early date, when all furniture was bespoke and done by hand, furniture making was an industry. Early account books um, record charges for each of the decorations seen here, evidence of a very sophisticated trade in component parts and specialized labor. This Boston side table has an interesting story. It's one of the pieces that the Kaufmans acquired after the exhibition in 1986. Linda Kaufman was kind enough to share the acquisition story. Um, she and George received a letter in the mail from a dealer in Greenwich advising them that he had this table to sell, a Massachusetts marble top side table with cabriole legs and foliate carving on the knees and beneath the skirt. It certainly sounded interesting. And they had planned to be in New England for a few days anyway, so they arranged to meet with the dealer. They liked the table very much, but it was so perfect. They couldn't figure out or understand how that could be, um, given all the time, the 200, more than 200 years that had passed since this table was made. If it was authentic, it would have been made about 1760. So they wanted the curators at Winterthur to examine it. The dealer returned it to the back of his pickup and drove it to Winterthur where experts Wendy Cooper and Brock Job took a look at it. Again, the condition seemed too good to be true, but they found a clue, a small sticker on the underside of the table that said Seaver, and it rang a bell. It turns out that a 1947 article in the magazine Antiques on the uh, Seaver home shows this, this 1900 photo of the front hall of the William Seaver home in Kingston, Massachusetts. And you can see the table on the far right of the photograph. And it turns out that table was in the Seaver home in Kingston, Massachusetts, and from the time it was made in about 1760 until the house was, um, the, the contents of the home were sold at auction in 1951. So that explains why it was in such good condition. It hadn't been moved. Boston had reached its zenith by the 1730s, and the balance of population and power began to shift toward Philadelphia another major center of colonial life. By 1760, Philadelphia had fully eclipsed Boston as the leading city in the colonies in wealth, fashion, and power. As in Boston, and perhaps even more so, the prevailing taste in Philadelphia was still oriented toward England. This Philadelphia desk and bookcase is probably the rarest and most significant piece in the collection, and that's why it serves as the frontispiece to the installation. It's a clear example of looking back toward England, which was facilitated for American cabinet makers by the publication of several how-to style directories. Here you can compare this piece with, a, um, with plate 78 from Thomas Chippendale's Gentlemen and Cabinet Makers Directory, published in London in 17, er, 1754. We know it was available in the colonies, we know that the cabinet maker Thomas Affleck in Philadelphia had a copy of it, and it was also in the library. The library company in Philadelphia had copies of it. Uh, Chippendale's designs were rarely copied directly in the colonies, and you can see this isn't a direct um, reproduction of the design, but it's close, especially for the bottom part of the, for the desk part of the piece. Chippendale often gave, the, gave two um, options, and you can see that in the drawing. There's an elaborate side on, in the bottom, case, bottom piece of the case and a more uh, simpler version. And in this case, the craftsman took a different, he made his own version, but he also made the piece much more elaborate by carving the moldings. Um, and he went much further using carved moldings. You can see the deeply carved frieze, the top with the bold rosettes, and I'll show you a detail in a moment. Gives you a better view. Notice the pilasters going up the side and the center of the upper part of the case. The Rococo ascetic of the 18th century favored light, especially complex reflections of light. Imagine this piece with the mirrored doors in candlelight. The mirrored doors also protect the contents of the bookcase. I feel like I should apologize to this piece of furniture, in a way, for showing you this, this photo. She's, she, the, this grand old lady of furniture is not prepared for showing. She's in the midst of being moved. But um, here you see the interior. And I wanted to show you what the interior looks like, since in the galleries you don't have that opportunity to see it. 
It's an incredibly beautiful interior. Um, notice the carved shells at, on the top drawers across the top. The, the movement of the interior. And uh, as I've got, taken people through the collection at various times, visitors have asked if there are any secret compartments in these pieces of furniture. And this one was my first suspicion, my first candidate for maybe having a secret compartment. So I asked Mrs. Kaufman, and she said that um, actually that center piece where the four drawers are and they're flanked by a plaster on each side, if you notice that, if you can see that right here, this box right here, that comes out. That box can be removed and there is some unaccounted for space behind it, which perhaps could qualify as a secret compartment, which isn't secret anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this piece, piece speaks to the architectural quality of great American furniture. Must have been made for an equally impressive architectural setting. Unfortunately, we don't know who made this piece or who it was made for. But there's one clue that might, one clue might be the carved bust at the top, centered in the elaborate pitch pediment. A bust is seen on a small number of Philadelphia pieces, but usually it's a bust of a man, and it's usually a political or a literary figure like Milton or Locke. And in this case, it's a woman. So it's very rare for it to be a female figure. There are some, there you go, there's, and here in this slide you can see the beautiful carving, the swag there in the center, and just the beautiful carving of the moldings on the pitch pediment. Some people think that this woman might be Catherine Macaulay. She was a politically active English historian who wrote an eight-volume history of England, but she was also a celebrated supporter of the American liberties, of American liberties, and she toured the colonies giving speeches before the Revolutionary War. Someday, a clue may come forth about this piece, perhaps a, a will or an inventory or something, and we'll know a little more about the origins of it. But we don't have to speculate about the provenance of these chairs that, that sit on either side of that piece in the installation. These magnificently carved side chairs are part of a suite of furniture made for the Philadelphia home of General John Cadwallader and his wife, Elizabeth Lloyd Cadwallader. They are two of seven known chairs there's one in Philadelphia and one at Winterthur, I think. And I'm not sure where the others are. But two of seven that we know about from a suite of at least 12. These two are inscribed with the Roman numerals 10 and 8. They were the height of fashion in 1770 Philadelphia. In their ample proportions, saddle seat, and scalloped skirts, these chairs, like the desk bookcase we just saw, reflect the designs of Thomas Chippendale, specifically his ribbon-backed chairs but in their enthusiastic, naturalistic carving, they are totally Philadelphia. This is a portrait that belongs to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and it's by Charles Wilson Peale. It's a portrait of John and Elizabeth Lloyd Codwallader and their daughter Anne, painted in about 1772. John Codwallader inherited money from his mother's side, the Lamberts, and in 1768, he married Elizabeth Lloyd of Hawaii Plantation, her father was the wealthiest planter on Maryland's eastern shore. John and Elizabeth bought a rather plain house on fashionable Second Street in Philadelphia, and they spent more on the architectural renovation and embellishment than on the house itself. At the same time, they commissioned Charles Wilson Peale, Philadelphia's preeminent painter, to paint the family portraits. And as you can see, Peale included furniture in the portrait. The little, little Anne is sitting on a table, which is a card table, that was part of the suite of furniture that included our chairs. So that card table is in the Philadelphia Museum. And in this portrait, also by Peel in the Philadelphia Museum, it's a portrait of Lambert Codwallader, John Codwallader's brother. Um, and the Peel has included a chair, which looks amazingly like our chairs except that the styles are molded instead of carved. But that may just have been Peel's choice not to paint the elaborate Rococo carving. Notice the hairy paw feet, typical of the Codwallader Commission on these chairs. Philadelphia was the foremost stylistic center in North America at the time. It had eclipsed Boston, and English cabinet makers were now choosing to come to Philadelphia. 
Rather than call this style after an English designer, however, rather than call it Chippendale, some people prefer to call it Rococo. Unlike the Baroque styles of William and Mary and Queen Anne, here the surface decoration of the carving does more than just enhance the form, it begins to eclipse the form. The, the carving begins to take over in its enthusiasm, and um, which is typical of the Rococo. It's a very naturalistic carving. The Codwallader furniture and house were a collaborative effort between Philadelphia's finest cabinet makers and carvers, the highest achievement of Philadelphia Rococo furniture. The chairs have long been thought to be by Thomas Affleck or Benjamin Randolph, perhaps with carving by Martin Hugues, Nicholas Bernard, or James Reynolds, and you'll hear those names again. Unfortunately, General Cadwallader died in 1786, and his household was dispersed. But the Powells and the Codwalladers were neighbors on Second Street, and this period room presentation at the Philadelphia Museum of Art gives you an idea of what their home may have looked like. It has architectural features from the Powell House, and it has the Codwallader paintings and furniture. So it gives you a sense of what the Codwallader home may have looked like. You notice the 18th century fashion of keeping the furniture all against the walls. So we'll continue to talk about Chippendale and Rococo furniture as we go into the next room of the installation. This is a view of the second room. And so far, we've talked about two major centers, Boston and Philadelphia. But there were several others as well, Newport, New York, Baltimore, Williamsburg, and Charleston. This next gallery, still devoted to Chippendale or Rococo furniture, is meant to showcase the regional differences and preferences that existed in the furniture produced in these cities. The furniture differed greatly by region for reasons having to do with, Im with um, immigration patterns of the patrons who came from different parts in, of Europe and especially of England and were used to different things and of the, the uh, craftsmen, where and how they had been trained. So you have these regional differences that persist. And not, and not wasn't until 1820 or 1830 that we begin to have something that looks like a national style in this country. So in this room, two extremely rare tea tables in the center of the room, as well as an additional table to the side, exemplify the distinctive ways the regional centers of Philadelphia, Newport, and Williamsburg, Virginia, express the form of a tea table. In the late 18th century, everybody needed a tea table to enjoy the new social activity of tea drinking introduced to Europe and its colonies early in the 17th century by trade with China. Tea drinking transformed patterns of entertaining. By the end of the 18th century, afternoon and evening tea parties were common, and they brought men and women together in an informal setting. Soon tea parties developed strict rules of tea party decorum, appropriate body posture, how to hold a cup, and proper conversation. And of course, a good tea party required more than just a tea table. It also required Chinese porcelain, tea from China or India, sugar from Barbados, and silver from South America, all the products of global trade and colonialism. And if you didn't like tea, there was chocolate or coffee, also newly available through global trade. This Williamsburg tea table, most scholarship in the history of American furniture has focused on New England, New York, and the Mid-Atlantic areas, but great pieces of furniture were also made in the South, with Charleston and Williamsburg being the major centers. The Kaufmans added Southern pieces to their collection whenever possible. This table from Williamsburg is very English in style. Called a China table in the 18th century, it has a pierced gallery to hold a porcelain tea service from China, and the design reflects the period's great interest in things Chinese. It's very different is this Philadelphia table, a beautiful pillar and claw tea table made for the Gratz family of Philadelphia. The flattened ball beneath the fluted column reflects an interest in classical architecture and proportion that flourished through the 18th century. It has what is called a pie crust top borrowed from scalloped silver salvers of the period. Notice the acanthus leaf carving on the knee of the leg, the cabriole legs, and the claw and ball feet, in this case, very predatory claw and ball feet, I think. They're really squeezing that ball into a horizontal shape. The, the carving is probably by the partnership of Nicholas Bernard and Martin Hugias, who engaged in many of the most elaborate Philadelphia commissions. This table also has what is called a birdcage, 
underneath, which allows it to turn and to tilt so that it can be stored against a wall when not in use. This is the Newport Tea Table. Newport was becoming an important mercantile and shipping center in the middle of the 18th century and developed a furniture style all its own, due primarily to the Goddard Townsend extended family of cabinet makers. This table is attributed to John Townsend. It's a rare example of a Newport tea table. There are only a few of them known. It's a totally American form, not as reliant on English precedents as the other two we have seen. Notice how solid and simple it seems. The curves of the skirt spread out like a wave of polished mahogany following the leading edge of the knee. The intaglio carving on the knee, which you can see in person better than on this slide, is so crisp and fine, facilitated by the tight grain of the mahogany, but it doesn't overtake the knee or the beautiful line of the cabriole leg. It just emphasizes it. I'm not sure the molded edge of the tray top would keep a tea set from falling off, but it certainly encloses and finishes off the design of the table. The beautifully carved cabriole legs and an amazing claw and ball feet. The claw is undercut, as you can see. You can see daylight through it. And the tension expressed in the grip of the talons is palpable as the ball is squeezed into an elongated shape. This would definitely be an added feature, an extra expense that the, the person who commissioned this tea table, this cost him more to have the reticulated ball and claw. And it's very, it's very, uh, it's um, co not common, but often it's the Towns Goddard Townsend group that does this. There's a similar card table in the same gallery right across against the wall that uh, made by the Goddard Townsend group. And you can see the similarity here. This is a card table, so it's open um, for playing cards. But you can see the similarity in the, in the apron and in the cabriole legs. This one, the legs are even more delicately carved, more slimmer, slimmer ankles. Uh, and then, but in this case, the ball and claw foot, as beautiful it is, is not um, undercut. So you can't see through it. This patron probably opted not to go that far. And the back feet have just been left as pad feet in this case. All of these things would have been price points for the consumer. In this room, there's also a, it's a great opportunity to compare the um, Philadelphia and the Newport high chests, which are a strength in this collection. These are, these are tall chests made for bedrooms, uh, for storing clothing and, and uh, other textiles. And um, at first glance, they're not so different, but you notice the Philadelphia piece has such elaborate carving. It has the, the very elaborate grain on the mahogany, the veneered mahogany front. It's a very figured mahogany. And the piece has elaborate carving at the base and again at the top, that cartouche at the top. And whereas the Newport chest has the same sort of simplicity that the Newport tea table had, I think it's very typical of Newport pieces, they didn't seem to be interested in following the very latest styles in London. And the Newport furniture makers had their own way of doing it, and their patrons seemed to be just fine with that. And what's not to like about that Newport chest? The other chest on chest in this room, this is the John Brown chest on chest, prominently placed on the end wall of the room. It's a version of the Rhode Island block front chest. This time, a chest on chest made for wealthy Providence merchant John Brown, ancestor of our former director, Carter Brown. On the lower case, to look at, see the block front feature, if you look at the lower case where you see the block front form, the solid wood drawer fronts have been sawn out with projecting sections or blocks on either side in a recessed section in the middle. This form originated in Boston in about 1740, but in the Rhode Island version, boldly carved shells uh, were applied to these blockings as a way to terminate them and to give dramatic focus to the piece. So the shells at the top of each of those blocked, either projecting or recessed sections, are the Rhode Island, are the Rhode Island um, version or adaptation of this. And the interesting thing about this piece, it looks like a Newport piece. In Newport, the shells are, would have been the convex, the concave shell would have been carved into the drawer, into the mahogany of the drawer front. But the convex shells would have been applied. And that's a smart way of working because you're not risking 
messing up and having to start all over again with a new drawer front as many times. But in this piece, all three shells, both concave and the two convex, are carved from the drawer front. So it's not as smart a way of working as the Newport way, and it makes people think that this piece may be a Providence piece, may have come from a Providence workshop instead of a Newport workshop. The dense, highly figured mahogany and these boldly sculpted shells, and it's very rare to have four shells on a piece, these signal the wealth and status of the Brown family, a wealth based on trade with the West Indies involving some of the major consumer items of the 18th century. As you look back at this gallery we've just been through, we've seen that furniture styles and preferences in pre-revolutionary America differed greatly by region for reasons having to do with immigration patterns and taste. However, as you look around this gallery, there is one commonality shared by high-style furniture made in all the regions from about mid-century on. That commonality was mahogany. America had vast forests and prodigious quantities of quality wood, maple, walnut, cherry, pine, poplar, but the attraction to mahogany was widespread across the colonies. Everyone who could afford it wanted to furnish their home with mahogany, in spite of the fact that it grew in the faraway tropics and by 1750 was already becoming scarce. This scarcity gave rise to an ongoing search for New World mahogany, which, which uh, extended through native ranges in the Northern Caribbean to Central and South America. What was the appeal of this wood from the tropical rainforest? Well, there were several things that made it appealing. It was extraordinarily durable, versatile, and attractive. It was especially solid and fine grain, which made it hard, heavy, strong, and good for carving. It was warp resistant, stable, and relatively impenetrable to insects. It was found in a surprising array of colors, depending on the chemical composition of the soil, and we've seen that array of colors, I think. It had a beautiful grain pattern, sometimes reminiscent of moray silk. So perhaps even more important than all of these things was the fact that when the rough wood was finished and polished, it resulted in a satiny smooth texture with a shiny reflective surface. As Jennifer Anderson points out in her book called Mahogany, these properties of mahogany coincided with 18th century concepts of beauty, gentility, and refinement. Mahogany objects became metaphors for the polish and refinement so dear to the 18th century. A polished environment went hand in hand with polished manners. And here we see from our collection, um, I mentioned that the Rococo aesthetic favored light and mahogany, especially complex reflections of light, and mahogany, the polished surface of a mahogany table is very good at reflecting light. Here you see uh, two paintings by Gilbert Stewart, one Captain Joseph Anthony that hangs with the furniture, and the other one is Catherine Brass Yates that hangs, she hangs upstairs. Um, in both, I think, you see the polished surface of his mahogany table. You see his brass buttons, the polished brass buttons, the brass nails on her chair, and more than anything, you see the polished, light reflective surface of her satin gown, and even the needle with a pearl on the tip that she holds in her hand. All of these things reflect light. It's a, just a, um, an example of the polish and refinement of the 18th century. There were gl less glamorous aspects of this fascination with mahogany and its trade, which involved increased exploitation of slave, lab slave labor and widespread deforestation of l huge native stands of trees. The age of mahogany was all part of the broader consumer revolution that I mentioned earlier. Yet another side to that consumer revolution is that international trade brought new prosperity to many, reaching far down the social order and with implications for furniture. Houses became more complex, separating public and private spaces, and French-style formal dining gave rise to new categories of consumer goods, with a special table, even an entire room dedicated to dining. So going into the next gallery, the central gallery. This um, room introduces the dramatic change in style and life that occurred soon after the American Revolution, or more accurately, after the adoption of the Constitution in 1788, when we became a united country. It reflects a revolution in taste that took place in London about 1760 that put Chippendale out of fashion in favor of the work inspired 
by the Scottish architects Robert and James Adam, known as the Adam Style. Mid-18th century archaeological excavations at Herculaneum and Pompeii spurred the beginnings of a classical revival, grounded in the Renaissance interest in the classical world, but newly invigorated, invigorated by recently discovered classical ruins. If you do the math, you can see that some of the Philadelphia Rococo pieces that we just talked about, made about 1760, 1770, were out of style in England almost before they were made here. There was definitely a time lag between England and the colonies, and the Revolutionary War further slowed the American rejection of the Rococo in favor of this new early classical style. Some aspects of the new classical taste trickled through, primarily in small objects, and I can show you this example from our collection that just recently went on view. Paul Revere, teapot, came from the Corcoran collection to the gallery, and this is a um, more of a classical uh, version of a teapot than he had formerly been making. His, er, his earlier teapots were apple-shaped or pear-shaped, and now he's picked up on this oval shape um, related to the new classical revival, and he's shown these patterns of swags across it. So, uh, but the new style became popular in America overall, almost immediately after the revolution and the adoption of the, almost immediately after the adoption of the Constitution. We were a new nation then, receptive to new ideas and looking for a new national style. In America, this early classical style is also called the federal style. It was characterized by light and linear shapes with shimmering veneers and inlays replacing carved Rococo ornament and a predilection for geometric shapes also. Um, in this period, houses become more complex and people begin to have rooms dedicated to dining, making it necessary to have a dining table. Mrs. Kaufman's parents acquired this table by John Townsend. Remember him from the sculptural um, Newport tea table we looked at with the reticulated claw and ball feet? Here, Townsend is stepping up to this new classical style involving veneers and inlay and a breathtaking expanse of polished mahogany. The focal point at the end of the room, you can see, is a brilliantly veneered mahogany sideboard inlaid with drapery swags, ovals, urns, and bellflowers, truly the vocabulary of early classical inlay. The sideboard was a relatively new form in the early republic, used to hold the accoutrements of dining. This one retains the label of New York cabinet makers William Mills and Simeon Deming of New York. It says, the label says, Mills and Deming, number 374 Queen Street, two doors above the Friends Meeting, New York, makes and sells all kinds of cabinet furniture and chairs after the most modern fashions at reasonable terms. The, this sideboard was made for Oliver Wolcott, Jr. or Sr., we're not sure which one. Both were governors of Connecticut. Sr. was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and Jr. was the first Secretary of the Treasury. So these were prominent, um, prominent owners. The entire facade of this piece is veneered in vertical panels of crotch mahogany, bookmatched on the doors. It's an amazing piece of work. Exuberant inlay, the inlay is satin wood, and you can see the, the um, swag, also some holly, and you can see the drapery swags on the doors that are caught up in a, in a urn, a classical urn, and then there are fans in the corner of every door and drawer. You see the swag across the central drawer that is caught up in the escutcheon for the keyhole. And the oval panels on either side of the central doors. It's just an amazing uh, piece of work. And um, I came across a, a picture of this sideboard on the cover of Antiques Magazine from about, oh, maybe 1928 or something, way before the Kaufmans started collection, collecting. This was considered an important piece. As you probably noticed, these galleries are like a who's who of American 18th century furniture makers and carvers. We've seen work from the Goddard Townsend Group in Newport, including this banquet table. The sideboard is by Mills and Deming of New York. The Cudwallet or chairs are thought to be by Thomas Affleck of Philadelphia. The Philadelphia tea table has carving by Nicholas Bernard and Martin Hugues. And now we're going to look at two tambour desks made in Boston by English immigrant craftsmen um, John and Thomas Seymour. John Seymour came, they are father and son. John Seymour came from uh, Boston 
from England to Maine in 1785 and moved to Boston in 1794. Thomas was his son. While in England, John had no doubt seen Adam-style furniture. Tambor desks like these, though, are distinctly American, specifically Boston, and the best of them are made by the Seymours. They're based to some extent on smaller English and French writing tables, typically made for ladies, but we have no indication that these tambour desks were made for ladies. Tambour refers to the um, separate reeds glued on a piece of canvas that open and close the upper portion of the desk. So you see them in the closed position on the right and in the open position on the left on these two different versions of the desk. And the veneer is crotch mahogany for the drawer fronts and curly maple for the tambours, which you, do, you can't see at this point. Um, the inside is robin's egg blue. Notice the little ivory pulls on the tambour door front. The slender legs with inlay going down the legs. The variety of inlay patterns on both of these tambour desks is just amazing. It tells you that the customer coming to the Seymour shop had lots of choices as to what they were, what they wanted. They could have a two-drawer two version, a three-drawer version. They could have their choice of inlays. They could have that bonnet top if they wanted, and I've seen other versions as well in other collections. There are all sorts of variations on this form. The, the um, drawer pulls on this piece and the other piece as well are Bilston. They're enamel on copper from Bilston, England. So they, they were imported. And these show images of the Four Seasons. So they, they're the only round elements on this piece, but they give it great emphasis. This card table is also from Boston and also by the Seymours. It's just the epitome of a Federal-style card table. It's um, very light and linear, perfect Federal-style piece. Card games were very popular in America, so like tea tables, card tables became a required piece of furniture. And for some reason, they were almost always made in pairs. People played whist and loo. Whist, I think, is a um, predecessor to contract bridge. I don't really know how you play it. This card table is an early Kaufman piece. And after they had owned it for a while, its mate appeared on Antiques Roadshow in the 1990s. The mate was not in great condition, and the Kaufmans decided not to try to acquire it. But you can go Google and read all about it. It's kind of interesting. It's another piece with a label on the inside of the apron. John Seymour and Son Cabinet Makers, Creek Square, Boston. The skirt of this piece is veneered in a single piece of um, straight-grained mahogany veneer across the, the whole front of the apron or the skirt, which emphasizes the shape, the demolune shape of the piece. And the inlay is extremely delicate. You can see it gets the husks get larger as the swag drops down. Uh, and then they come up, they get smaller as they come up, and they're tied in a very delicate bow at the top of the legs there, at the very top of the apron. And then the, the husks that descend down the leg, they get larger on the apron, and then they begin to get smaller as they go down the leg. And they descend within a strip of um, I think it's curly maple. Another Philadelphia, that we've been in Boston and now moving to Philadelphia. This is a Philadelphia card table made out of satinwood. Uh, it's another piece that the Kaufmans actually purchased and then discovered that it does have a signature on it. The signature is, it's signed in pencil underneath um, Robert McGuffin, 1807. So they didn't discover that till after they owned it. But it's, um, it's a kidney-shaped, a kidney-shaped piece that's very common in Philadelphia, but incredible inlay work on this. And the, the main wood is satin wood, which is even more exotic than mahogany. And then mahogany is used for some of the inlay pieces, as well as ebony and a variety of other very exotic woods. It's a, another instance of global trade in exotic woods. And also, dated 1807, this piece gives you an inkling of what's going to happen the approaching end to the rule of mahogany. With the turn of the century, change is ahead in a number of ways. As excavations at ancient sites continued, people became more familiar with images from our ancient artifacts, such as these. On the left, you have a painted Etruscan terracotta slab 
from the 6th century BCE. And on the right, you have a painting from a Greek vase showing a soldier's wife seated on a chair. This chair is called a klismos chair, and you'll see it again. But the, looking at the um, painted Etruscan terracotta slab, the chair there is a example of a of cross-stretchered uh, seating or a curial chair. And that is picked up toward the end of the century and the beginning of the 19th century furniture makers looking at, at these images that they're, that they're learning about from classical excavations. So the, the new classical interest for the early one based on the atoms was kind of a generalized classicizing interest. But now people have more knowledge. They've seen actual objects coming from the excavations. So they have a much more archaeological interest in classicism. And you begin to see this cross-stretchered chair become popular and the lyre um, motif, for also from classical images. And in this case, this is a Duncan Five-style chair. Um, the, the lyre motif comes, is, has a strong association with Duncan Fife. And notice the beautifully carved tablet on this chair, too, which is hard for you to see and hear, but you would see it in the, in the gallery. Uh, carving is back. We, we went through the last gallery, and all we saw was inlay beautiful inlay, but carving had, had gone away with the Chippendale, but now all of a sudden carving is in fashion again, and you'll see it more and more as we go into the last gallery. This is the final gallery, and you notice the bold and curvilinear look. There are lots of round shapes. There's some carving. It's very different from the Federal Gallery, where everything is so uh, elegant and linear. What had begun is a generalized classical revival with a light and linear style in the spirit of classicism, but without the details, became in the early years of the 19th century a more robust and curvilinear style, informed by two factors. One, a more specific understanding of archaeological findings, and finally, a turn away from England toward Napoleonic France. That's critical. A fo the focal point in the center of this room is one of the finest Italian marble top center tables. This was a novelty at the time when people were accustomed to furniture being placed along the walls. The center table is one of a pair commissioned by Edward Coleman, who in 1825 inherited a huge amount of money from his father, the very wealthy owner of the Elizabeth Furnace in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He had made a lot of money on supplying ammunition for the Revolutionary War. Ed Coleman moved to Philadelphia and bought the Lippincott House on Mulberry Street, now Arch. He went abroad to shop in 1827 and purchased two sample tops in Italy. Upon his return to Philadelphia, that, that's a sample top, that marble piece that has so many different uh, types of marble in it. Upon his return to Philadelphia, he commissioned French immigrant cabinet maker Anthony Querville to create a frame for these tops to make center tables for his two parlors. Querville rejected the light and linear earlier style, and instead he used exuberant curvilinear shapes. This table has five scrolled legs with strong paw feet. It has carved grapevines and acanthus leaves on the legs, varied but very different from the acanthus leaves we saw on the Philadelphia tea table. And it has an unusual three-dimensional star-shaped star stretcher. I like to compare it to this painting of Napoleon's study. Looking at Napoleon's desk, you see a similarity in the foot to the to the feet on the round top table, the sample top table. You can see Anthony Querville coming from France, maybe had seen this, or this was just a stylistic feature that became popular. Looking back toward, looking toward Napoleonic France now. And that's why this is called the Empire style, as well as the late classical style. The wood here is still mahogany. But it begins to, it has a, uh, it's coated with materials to imitate ancient bronze in places. It's kind of blackened. Another piece that I love in this, this late classical or empire gallery is this um, Grecian couch. Baltimore was a major furniture center that we haven't yet talked about. Following the revolution, Baltimore was in its heyday. It's deep harbor and made it a commercial hub and extraordinary fortunes were made there. By the end of the 18th century, native-born and immigrant furniture makers were producing furniture in Baltimore in a classical archaeological style that reflected this new taste. I think their shops were all on Gay Street, if any of you know Baltimore. In the early 1800s, the city's architecture was being enhanced 
by the great classical revival architecture, Benjamin Latrobe and Robert Mills. This beautiful Grecian couch by Hugh and John Finley, Baltimore's preeminent furniture makers, is painted to resemble the grain of exotic rosewood. So all the painted decoration is applied over walnut. It's not that this is an inferior wood that's been painted, it's walnut, but it's been painted not so much to um, imitate rosewood, it's painted as if it were rose, but rosewood, but there's no attempt at accuracy. It's really more of a, a concentration on a vibrant display of color and pattern in the rosewood. The ornamentation with gold leaf is an imitation of more costly ormolu or gilded brass. It's certainly a classically inspired furniture form, but also another instance of influence from France. This is David's port painting of Madame Recamier, painted about 1800, and you can see the similarity in the type of furniture, the, the, the lounge, the chaise, um, became, made that, that type of furniture very popular everywhere. So it would be hard to imagine um, Mrs. Yates from the previous century or previous style, the federal period, on, in her polished satin reclining on this piece of furniture. But the, I like to think about Eliza Ridgely and upstairs in our American galleries. This portrait is by Thomas Sully in 1818. She was the daughter of a Baltimore merchant. Um, and I like to imagine that she would be a, an appropriate person to be reclining on that chaise in her beautiful neoclassical gown. Uh, we also know that her family owned a similar Greek, Grecian couch by the Finley, brother, the Finley brothers. We've, I think we've seen the invoice for it. Um, if, I'm not sure where the, where the couch is, if it still exists, but, but we think the family did own one. We'll go quickly through the few more pieces in this gallery. This is a convex mirror. Again, these round and bold forms that became popular. This time, it's a new style of looking glass. And the Girondel clock, also a new style of looking glass. This one has a, has a maker we know, Lemuel Curtis. It's a detail of the, the um, panel, the decorative panel on it, that shows Commander Perry's victory on Lake Erie in 1813. Now, we, we saw the Klismos chair and those um, uh, um, images from classical Greek, Greece and Rome, and I told you to hold on to that image of the Klismos chair, and here you go. This chair becomes the um, most popular style of chair in the empire, in the empire style in, early, in the early part of the 19th century, and in this ga the gallery here, the empire gallery, Every chair in there is a Klismos-style chair, with the exception of one. And they're from all places. They're from Philadelphia. These are Philadelphia chairs, but there are examples from Boston, from New York, and from Baltimore in that gallery as well. So you see how popular, and there are very many versions of it. Some are more extreme than this, but this is the Philadelphia version. Um, here, inlay, we've been looking at wood inlay in the federal period, but now in this late classical period, the inlay is brass, and it's called bulwark. It's brass inlay in ebony um, on, the, on the seat rail. You can see the brass in ebony. And it seems to be in, in uh, mahogany up above on the top. And this Philadelphia writing table with bookcase kind of brings us full circle. It's the, um, it's the latest iteration of the Philadelphia desk bookcase. But in this piece, the writing surface is hidden away in a drawer and it's called a writing table instead of a desk. The, pur the purpose is disguised, really. As in the chairs, it's got cut brass inlay known as bulwark has replaced the wood inlay, inlay of the federal period. Bulwark is named after a French cabinet maker, so again, the, the influence of France is so, so strong here. And notice the ebonized ball feet. I'm not sure if they're actually ebony or if they've just been darkened to look like ebony. So I'll end with this last slide, which is sort of the short version of our journey today. We began about 1700, 1730, with the early and late Baroque styles named after English monarchs. And then about mid-century, we entered the age of mahogany and Chippendale with this magnificent Philadelphia Rococo desk and bookcase on the left. 
We then talked about the early classical or federal style here exemplified in the center by a federal Philadelphia version of the desk bookcase. We didn't talk about this piece specifically, but I'm sure you can recognize the characteristics of the early classical style, the light and linear form, the geometric shapes, the beautiful veneers, and the delicate and refined inlay. With the version on the right, we are just over 100 years from where we started. This is yet another desk bookcase from Philadelphia, now referred to as a desk or a writing table bookcase, but performing the same function. You can notice the classical simplification of form along with exquisite craftsmanship. And in reality, this is the end of the series, the crowning glory before the furniture, um, before furniture making in America gives way to the unstoppable forces of industrialization. So thank you all for coming today. I hope you'll go into the galleries to appreciate the physical beauty and presence of these pieces I've talked about, as well as the many others we didn't get to. And please come back next Sunday when same time, same place to hear David Gariff talk about central Italian painting. So thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.